0: All right, we now welcome on former Andy Kennedy staffer, Rippy Wright's Hoops correspondent, Bracken Ray here, about 24 hours or so removed from the national championship game, an all-time national championship game, and really a fantastic NCAA tournament. Figured we'd chop it up a bit. We already did kind of the Ole Miss podcast, Ole Miss obituary to the (laughs) 2021-2022 season podcast, but as it kind of happens in college basketball, like, you know, if your team's not in the dance, you get about a two-week head start on – some off-season attrition so we'll hit that probably some ncaa tournament stuff what's up my man
1: man not a whole lot what about yourself
0: oh nothing just uh as we record this trying to keep up with this uh midweek baseball game as best i can we can't somehow they're still in the day and age of 2022 you can have a ranked college baseball game not be on a stream i get it's a ballpark issue but uh can you just stop playing games in a ballpark that doesn't allow streaming? What the hell? I was listening to DK uh, on the radio until he started recording, but I, I was kind of miffed by that one. I was like, wait, what do you mean this isn't on TV?
1: Yeah, it's wild that, um, you know, an in-state game between two ranked teams, um, you know, in a, in a big alumni base, is not, it's not on TV because I know I'd be watching if it was.
0: And I'm just going to throw this one out there for the listeners because I was reading on the way home from the office stuck in traffic about how like it's a Trustmark Park thing and they don't allow streaming. If someone out there wants to shoot me a DM and explain it to me like I'm four, I guarantee you I've watched a streamed game at Trustmark Park before. I know I've watched a Governor's Cup there. Maybe it's because it was on SEC Network and I just streamed it because that's how I have the – like I don't have traditional cable. But if someone wants to explain that one to me, I was just at a complete loss for that. I was like, I know I've streamed one at at Trustmark Park before. So um, before we uh, dive in too deep to uh, Ole Miss baseball and the, I think, three errors they've made already, let's talk some hoops. Um, All-time NCAA tournament. What did you think? I thought this was one of the more entertaining NCAA tournaments that I could remember. I, uh, I enjoyed every second of it.
1: Yeah, I thought it was a lot of fun. And and really, if you think about it, it kind of started with the conference tournaments, too. Um, There were some really good conference tournament games, conference tournament championships, you know, a few buzzer beaters as well. So, you know, March lived up to its height this year. Um, Definitely did not see Carolina, you know, making it all the way. Um, We looked back probably six weeks ago, and we didn't know if they were going to make the tournament or not. But um, they got hot at the right time, which is why March is so fun. And last night uh, last night's game was an all timer as well I mean that was pretty high level basketball
0: what do you what do you where do you fall on the whole like I like the Cinderella story I think it's I kind of roll my eyes sometimes when people are like well you actually want the blue Bloods there at the end and I get from like a ratings perspective there's value in that but I kind of like the mixture like I thought the St. Peters thing was cool also thought it was awesome that we had Villanova Kansas Carolina and Duke obviously the biggest Carolina Duke game you know maybe ever um okay. in the final four but like if the final four had been I don't know like a Miami or Houston had snuck in there I feel like I would have enjoyed it just as much now granted Carolina Duke could have been an exception but like where do you fall on that whole theory because I don't really care because in my opinion the games at the end of the year in the elite eight and the final four are almost always awesome anyway
1: yeah I think that if um If Houston had made it to the Final Four this year, that would have been really, really cool. I I had them, I think, in at least the Elite Eight. Um, But I think one of the reasons people make that take is because a team like a St. Peter's, you, you get afraid that they may lose that magic Know at some point, and then what happens if it turns into a 25 or 30 point game in the elite eight or in the final four? I think that's kind of where that tape comes from. But we remember, you know, the Butlers and VCUs of the world like we remember those teams for that. Um, VCU kind of made its name as a program for those runs as well. So I think it's pretty cool to see, um, you know, in addition to having some blue bloods there.
0: I agree. Was there anything that shocked you? Uh, we haven't talked since the NCAA tournament happened, and obviously there was ton, you know, a couple upsets. And there's a ton of ways you could go with it. Um, I'll just pigeon you into this one. What the hell with Kentucky? Where, where do you see Cal from here? That was one of the most. That was probably the most shocking uh, element of it to me. He probably is not getting much sympathy from uh, KSR Radio up there. That St. Peter's made the Elite Eight. I'm just gonna guess
1: yeah um that was shocking to me i had them going super far um and the reason why is because the oscar uh toshibwe i mean the dude the dude gets rebounds like like nobody's business um and you know they they had a nice mixture this year of transfers and kind of some high level high school guys too but you know that's the crazy thing about march and for for cal you know I, a lot of people were like you know hot seat type stuff i mean I don't, I don't know. I think that's a little, that's a little premature, but he had a good team this year and St. Peter's, I think that was my one surprise is how far they went. And then, I mean, look Carolina going as far as they do. We kind of talked about Carolina in a way like they were a Cinderella because, um, you know, cause of the past couple of years with them in the end, they're a blue blood, but we kind of viewed them in the light because of their regular season as, as a Cinderella. And, you know, I, I didn't um, think that Hubert did a, really good job with them the first couple months of the season. Um, but, man, they turned it on in March, and uh, Baycock, he, he's a player.
0: Yeah, he is, and that was an incredible run from them either because I kind of had them as an afterthought. Like, it, you know, they how many times did they get beat by 20-something in conference play, and then it all just kind of put put together in March, which was pretty wild to see. Um, I imagine a bunch of quite a few old Miss people probably remember Brady Manick from 2019 Oklahoma. What was the other kid they had? Was it Christian Doolittle at Oklahoma that kind of tore them up in that 2019 NSA tournament? Is that right?
1: That sounds right. That game was a little bit of a yawner.
0: Yes, that game was over from uh, really about the opening jump. But uh, I could see now how Dom and Bruce maybe didn't necessarily <laughs> match up with Brady Manick and that Doolittle kid very well. Um, but anyway, neither here nor there. I'm trying to think of a couple other things that just stuck out throughout the course of the tournament. Um, The Coach K thing, I was never really on huge on the I hate Coach K thing. I think think it's funny how Coach K in like the late 80s, early 90s, really even 2000s, pre-social media is probably the best way to put it, kind of became like this revered figure in college basketball in terms of like could do no wrong. And then kind of once we got a little more access into things and, you know, more media outlets and different ways to consume content, it was actually like, okay, this guy's not a bad guy, but he's kind of full of shit and, like, no one's really said anything. And it became this whole, like, hate train and I get it's Duke or whatever. But I thought the run was cool. I, Honest to God, I thought it would have been cool if they'd have won the whole thing. I wasn't a K-hater. Where did you fall in that whole storyline? I didn't think he did a good job with that team. I'll add that. But I didn't want to see them lose necessarily like most people did.
1: Yeah, the blue blood that I actually followed growing up was Duke outside of Ole Miss. I went to basketball camp and stuff like there growing up. So, you know, I was rooting for that. I think, um, you know, what's what was really interesting to me is I'm very pro pay players, pro transfers, but the amount of um, like the amount I paid attention to Duke since they've gone heavy one on one has decreased so much more than when they had, you know, the three, four-year guys like Zuback and uh, J.J. Reddick and all those guys. Um, So, like, it's interesting as a a fan to see, like, how that's changed things, because I'm locked into just about every Ole Miss baseball game, and it's because you know the guys that are coming back. So, while I'm pro for the players, it's interesting, like, the deal with the, from a fan standpoint, but um, JJ Redick actually has a, a podcast. that's pretty good. He, he has some good guests, uh, guests on. And he said one year, I think it was his junior year. They were down like 20 at half and coach K looked at him and said, I hate your effing faces. <laughs> that was his line to all of them. <laughs> I hate your effing faces. Um, so I think that you're right from a social media standpoint before social media Kay had a really good reputation and I don't think you know I think there are a lot more bigger scumbags out there than him if you hear stories about coaches but I think that you know with podcasts and different mediums now like we kind of hear more behind the scenes stuff than we have um you know a decade ago and I think part of that you know that's where part of the, the coach Kay stuff comes from like you're saying.
0: Oh, for sure. I mean, was it, was it the Dylan Brooks thing where he like the, he, or the kid at Oregon who was like chirping him a couple years ago after a tournament game, he very clearly got on caught saying something to him about like not doing that on camera. And then went in the press conference. Like, I didn't say that. I was like, dude, do you know, these things are on TV? Like we have, we have pretty high quality cameras that, and then the fact that he was acting like when the FBI thing came out, it's like, you know, we don't yeah. really do that here. It's like, Oh really? Cause you've gotten everyone and done in their brother. Um, for their last, you know, half decade or so. But anyway, yeah. that was a cool, uh, cool, it was the coolest, cool, awesome Final Four with that many Blue Bloods. Obviously, the Duke-North Carolina game was an all-timer. What did you think, before we kind of get in some of the old Miss stuff, what did you think of the game last night? I uh, I wasn't necessarily surprised about the outcome. I was more shocked that Carolina got up that much early because that's kind of what this Kansas team had done all year. They would kind of piddled around for like six, seven, eight-minute stretches, sometimes longer than that, and then – When they got hot, they got hot. And from a talent standpoint, it wasn't one of themselves more talented teams. So when they went on those, like, ridiculously dominant runs, it was kind of head-scratching because you couldn't necessarily, like, how is this happening right now? So, like, outcome didn't shock me, but the way the game went surprised me a bit.
1: Yeah, and, you know, what's really interesting about it is Kansas didn't do a whole lot good at all in the first half. Specifically, they missed a lot of shots around the rim. I think – They pulled a stat up. They were like six for twenty-one inside the paint in the first half, but they turned that around in the second half. Um, I thought they really pushed the tempo more and got out and ran. And something that I don't think was called out enough last night um, was Kansas's like perimeter uh, ball pressure defense. Um, They they kind of you know when you think about ball pressure, a lot of times you think about like hey pressing, running, jumping, and trapping, and all that stuff, but what I thought Kansas did a good job of last night is it took North Carolina a lot longer to get into their sets than Carolina wanted to. And that didn't, that didn't mean that Kansas was forcing just tons of turnovers off of their ball screen defense. But they were being aggressive enough to where they were taking Carolina out of a lot of their stuff. Um, you know, they were really up in passing lanes as well. Uh, Carolina probably had opportunity when, – when you've got people up in your passing lanes – you have an opportunity to back cut a lot. And I thought that Carolina didn't take advantage of that as well. And then also, I didn't think they took advantage of McCormick being in the foul trouble that he was. They tried to get it to Baycock a little bit, but they weren't running anything effective enough. Because if he picked up his fourth, you know, before that first media or something, that game may have been over.
0: I think it's a great point. Like what you're describing is, is like when things in the second half, particularly in the first like nine minutes or so looked a lot harder. Like it did not necessarily, like you said, mean like steals and turnovers, but like everything North Carolina did offensively looked a hell of a lot harder. And that probably contributed some of, like you mentioned taking advantage of McCormick having the foul trouble and getting the ball down low. It just seemed like they were so disoriented from like the 20 minute mark to about the nine minute marker. So that, like, they just weren't able to do it. Like, even if they were trying, like, by the time they got the ball up the court, some of the possessions had become somewhat more, more difficult. It's like they didn't have a concerted game plan to be able to get it down there every time. It, did you have an opinion on the – I thought this whole, this was the perfect social media debate. It was so stupid. The whole floor gate thing where, yeah, if they, they might win that game uh, if the kid makes the – if he doesn't slip and he makes the, uh, the layup on that possession – you know you had the video of like did you see this where like the floor buckled a little bit but everyone that's ever played basketball that like i follow on social media was like no that's how like that's how most of those floors are like most of any college basketball floors like the floor is supposed to give a bit where did you fall on
1: that no i they're supposed to give a little bit and for those temporary floors um from both uh give stamp giving too much standpoint and also um we we call it a sweating floor. So a lot of times that is when you play in like a hockey arena and it, you know, it's over the ice. Um, I mean, look, I wasn't there, but I didn't think that that happened at a consistent rate enough to where it like changed the game uh, drastically. I've seen it do that before. Shit. The Mississippi Coliseum (laughs) has probably a little too much given it, Um, but it's really hard. And, you know, there's a big debate on like, should it be played in these huge football stadiums or, You know, would the atmosphere be better at a uh, big NBA arena? And at the end of the day, of course, the atmosphere would be better if, you know, the ceilings are lower and it's a lot louder and all that. But money talks.
0: Yes, it does. And I don't even mind the big like 70,000 environment for those two games because like you don't ever see it anywhere else. And like it's a different kind of noise, and it looks kind of cool on TV. So I'm with you on that one too. Money, money certainly talks. They're not moving it to a smaller venue anytime soon. um But a great, uh, a great year for college basketball. You know, we everyone talked about the tournament being awesome. Maybe we, just, I mean, look, it was a great tournament. Maybe we just kind of forgot because you didn't get one in 2020, and you didn't really have a normal one last year until kind of the later rounds, like. Uh, but all in all, uh, I feel like college basketball, stock is up.
1: That's right. That's right. You know, the the past two or three years, there's been kind of a lot of whining and some of the uh, – about the talent on the floor. And then also, you know, some of the blue bloods have kind of been down in the past couple years, um, which hasn't been typical. But I thought this year was a really good year. I think going forward as well, just what you're going to see um, with the transfer portal is – people are going to have the opportunity more to play at the level they should be playing at. So there will be high majors going down and there'll be low to mid majors going up. And I think that that's going to, you know, I think that'll add some excitement for 2022, 2023 and beyond. Speaking of
0: uh, high majors going down, that's probably as good of a transition as any to get into (laughs) Ole Miss. (laughs) That's what we in the biz call a transition. The, uh, so, Ole Miss, there's a lot has happened since we last spoke. I guess that would be, I mean, somewhere right around uh, Ole Miss's uh, pretty early exit from the SEC basketball tournament. Uh, let's start with the roster turnover. So, right before we started recording, I just wanted to make sure I had everyone down. You would know better than me, so correct me just to make sure I have this right. In terms of roster turnover with guys leaving the program, yeah, had Slatten transfer Vanderheiden or however you say the kid's name out. Crowley and Luis are out. Who else did I miss?
1: Just I talking think,
0: through this out loud.
1: I, I think I think that so far that's accurate.
0: I think that's accurate too. I'll do Oh, did you-
1: oh, say, say, did you say Sammy Hunter?
0: Oh yeah, sorry, Sammy Hunter's another one. So. Let's start there because we'll get into the coaching aspect in a minute of it because I think this ties into it. Um, what was you know we talked about the biggest critique with this program and you know the the lack of success um, last year was the fact that they maybe weren't as great in the portal as they needed to be and they elected to take three high school kids and I wrote about this a lot over the over the you know beginning part of March you know during and after Ole Miss's season was coming to an end was. Kermit's up there beating the injury drum, and it's not completely unfair, but we talked about this before. I thought the injury part of it exposed this team's flawed roster buildup and a lack of depth more so than it was actually just injuries decimating the team, right? You lost Ruffin for a little more than half the year. You lost Jarkell for a little less than half the year. And then you lost Robert Allen early in the season. That's not exactly having managers suit up for practices and just trying to get through the year. And so the root of that criticism came from taking the three high school kids, and two of them have been processed out after a year leaving – what is that? That is leaving um, the kid from Georgia, right? Um, he played at the
1: end of the James, year. James, well, James, James White and the, yeah. James
0: yeah. White, who had to play. Most at most at a necessity he showed some flashes, but not necessarily. I would say a contributor, even through all the injuries that kind of Kermit was touting. What do you make of that? Like, did, I know you're not necessarily shocked that they processed the kid, but just what do you make of that being a one-in? You know, those two kids coming in, one in, one out, like that. It's almost admitting defeat,
1: is it not? Yeah, you know it, it's interesting, and I think what you and I talked about on in the injury piece that I thought was a little head scratching is it was kind of the, the narrative was around the guys that got hurt and you know, that was Ruffin and Jarrell and then Robert Allen, which was probably overblown, you know, his significance uh, from a loss. Well, my, my thing was there wasn't really ever an overlap between Ruffin and Jarrell's injury. Like it was, it was kind of equivalent to one player being hurt season long. Um, and so fan, for fans that have frustration about that, because Houston, you saw how far they made it this year. They had some dudes out. You know, Alabama had a really good player out. LSU had a really good player out the whole season. You know, I mean, that, that, that makes total sense. Um, but yeah, right now, I mean, they've got, they've got four or five guys in the portal. And the interesting note kind of from the press conference a few weeks ago, and then I, I guess the press release as well, is talking about how there kind of were some mistakes maybe or alluding to mistakes on taking as many high school guys as they did, and there's four high school guys signed right now. Which is more
0: than a year ago. And yeah, you would notice – fill me in on this. Can, can you process uh, – process is not even the right word because the kid's not in the program. Can you can you cut a kid essentially take the scholarship away? Everyone knows what I'm getting at. This late in the ballgame?
1: Well, the, the, the kids can get out of their NL, or, uh, LOI in NLI. In I can't remember what it's called, but yeah, you can, th- that can happen this late in the year.
0: Is that, I mean, even though that's able to happen, is that, is that something that is going to raise eyebrows around the recruiting industry? Like, you know what I mean? There's good practices to have, there's bad practices to have, and then there's just kind of the nature of the business. Where do you think that falls in that?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, I think it's situational, right? Because I do think, like a kid, like um, the guy Nick Crass down on the coast, that was committed for a while. It wouldn't shock me if there was a situation where they told him and were transparent with him. Hey, look, you got a committable offer. It's maybe a signable offer. You know, we're we're going to continue to recruit. We're going to continue recruiting. Blah blah blah. So I think it kind of comes down to transparency, but, you know, college basketball, I mean, it's pretty cutthroat. Um, you can burn some bridges and that may not hurt you in the short term, but it could hurt, hurt you five or 10 years down the road. That kind of stuff happens a lot.
0: And, and you know, on the contrary to that, or not even contrary, but just adding to it, you know, this staff is not in position to think five years down the road. They don't have that. I mean, I think everyone knows what's at stake here. It's kind of similar to the baseball program in some senses. And so – if that is going to happen, we sit here recording this on April 5th, can that extend into the summer? Like, in terms of the getting kids up there, how does that work? I'm so much less familiar with the college basketball timeline in terms of kids getting to campus and them getting ready for the season versus football. Like, how does that work? Like, what would be the latest yep. that could happen, I guess? Is well, the best way to ask. yeah, I mean, really the
1: latest this could happen is the the first summer semester, which is the first week of June. What I will say though is the transfer portal the vast majority of it will be wrapped up here in about four weeks um, so you know the windows the, the, the window is these next three or four weeks to get things done and you know the transfer portal giveth but it al- also taketh as well so you know that's that's the tough part about it um, what's really interesting is talking to coaches you know the past couple weeks. Um, about just college basketball in general, and then even a little bit about the SEC and Ole Miss, the, the one thing that I keep hearing them consistently say is with any program, you know, that's got a coach on the hot seat that, you know, kind of has an ultimatum uh, for the upcoming season, every single one of the, the coaches that I've talked to in the past has told me this, it's never over, right? Because of the transfer portal now, it's never over. The My comeback on that statement, though, is at the end of the day, a lot of these guys that you're going to get from a low to mid-major school, they don't care a ton about winning. I know people don't like to hear that. Not all of them care a ton about winning. But it's the things like hey, uh, NIL being able to play at a P5 school and the SEC being able to play on TV where their parents can watch them. Those are the things that are are more important to them. Um, And so the tough part about where the staff is right now is they're going to, opposing coaches are going to hit these kids pretty hard that are uh, multi-year transfers on job security. Grad transfers, it may be a little bit easier to get to, um, but for these multi-year transfers, it's like, do you want to play for three coaches in three years? that's what these opposing coaches recruiting uh, you know, philosophy is going to be to a lot of these guys against Ole Miss right now. And, you know, so far they've got, they've got one guy um, committed. They've got, you know, your four or five attrition. Um, and so you, you gotta, you gotta bring some dudes in.
0: Yeah, they, uh, they certainly do. And right now, I mean, as the, as, as I'm trying to do some math here, just in real time, they only have, like, the like there's only one roster spot, right? You lost one, two, three, four, five guys. You bring in, what, four high school kids, and then they had a kid committed. Maybe I'm missing something. I guess it doesn't matter, but they bring in – they had to get a commitment from the Jackson – the kid coming from Jackson State, the center. Yeah. It just doesn't – it's clearly not over with. I'm just curious to see how it shakes out. Your best guess, do you think they end up with four high school kids on the roster?
1: Well, so here's what makes the rest of this interesting. Now, I have no idea about anything behind the scenes, but just knowing in today's day and age, compared to a decade or two decades ago, kids are tied to assistance by the hip almost. And at least three of those high school guys, Ronnie Hamilton brought in, and I believe James White and uh, Ty Fagan, he was the lead recruiter on as well. Do you know how many spots, uh, scholarship spots open Matt McMahon had when he took when he took the LSU job?
0: Well, I mean, now it's every single one, right? They don't have a scholarship player other than I guess he brings Trey Hannibal with him from Murray State, right?
1: That's right. So thirteen thirteen spots minus one for Murray. I it's my I think he'll bring in a few guys from Murray, um, from, from that roster, but you know, with how with how closely attached players are to these guys' hips, and I don't know anything behind the scenes, but what it shock me—if that's a group of five players right there—could another spot or two open up because of guys jumping ship and following an assistant. Um, so, so pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, and so that's probably the the
0: best way to look at it. From because it, I guess the more and more I think about it, it's like actually there's actually so much more to play out here. Let's look at who's returning. It's Morrell Ruffin, so that's two. Well, actually, we don't know that. I'm, I'm trying to think. I think possibility returning is the best way to do it. morell Ruffin, Brakefield, and Joiner, Robert Allen, they would not be processed per se. So those are the only kind of guarantees if they want to stay. And, like, you know, as we sit here on April 5th, I don't know anything about the Ruffin situation, but, you know – you know, you hear things, and as the days go by, you hear all kinds of different stuff. So I guess we don't really know a ton about how this was shake out, So I guess to kind of package this into an actual coherent uh thought and conversation, let's just get to the coaching side of it because you've had two assistants leave. You mentioned on the last podcast, and we talked actually pretty good length about this about the whole Ronnie Hamilton win case. Um, coaching staff dynamic now two of his guys are gone and that's comes on the heels of him I believe going on the on three outlet and going on their podcast and saying he doesn't anticipate any sort of staff changes and excuse me that would be uh, Levi Watkins sorry so those two are gone Levi and Ronnie are gone just from someone that was a casual basketball fan onlooker that maybe doesn't know the ins and outs of recruiting like how would you articulate to them how significant those two losses are particularly the Levi side of it, because that's kind of what we hit on last time.
1: You know, Levi, um, we've said this before in my lifetime, unless I'm missing something, it's the first time Ole Miss has stolen a P5 assistant from another school in my lifetime. Um, Levi's connected from coast to coast. Uh, I'm, you know, NC States is alma mater. It makes sense for him to go there. I'm, I would assume that they're giving him, you know, a, a two-year contract. That coach is kind of on the – or that coach is on the hot seat. Um, but, look, Levi, Levi's pretty connected. He He's a good recruiter and has a pretty good name around the circle – or, excuse me, around the college basketball um, circle. So that that's a pretty tough one. Um, and, you know, the other the, – the thing with uh, Levi is he was the one guy that um, – who also could get you transfers. He was able to get you transfers that could come in and step in day one. I think Levi's effect would have been um, even more significant if Ole Miss's uh, resources, we'll just put it that way, were a little bit better. Uh, Nowadays, NIL, which Ole Miss is is a Wednesday night team in the the SEC tournament with this NIL stuff right now. Um, So they – but you you've know, been on a lot for a
0: long time, by the way. You were one of the earliest ones to kind of start pointing that out that this is a problem. But continue, I derailed you.
1: Yeah, we, yeah, yeah. I, I believe it's a problem, and and here's the thing: there are people right now that want a new coach today. There's people right now that want to give it a year. Ole regardless, has to has to step it up, the, from that standpoint, they have to because. What's going to happen is if the job ever opens up, you're going to be so far behind other P5 and P6 schools. And, the, you know, the administration, if you want to look at the hire, whatever they've done, you know, if you think it's good or not, all right, let's scratch that. From a facility standpoint, you're at a good place. But this, the administration has done a much better job in the past half decade of getting resources from an assistant coach salary pool standpoint, recruiting budget. So you finally got those things up. You've got a really, really, really nice pavilion, uh, you know, arena in the pavilion. Your practice facility, you know, is probably middle of the pack in the SEC, but Ole Miss is 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 behind an NIL. And it's gonna it's gonna hurt them in, in a job search because the two things that um these coaches look for that I think is underrated when they're going for a job is current players on the roster and NIL, and the reason current players on the roster is huge right now is because these guys don't have five years anymore to, to win. You've got three years. In college football, it's like two. We saw Chad Morris, right? So they're looking at their, the current roster and the NIL package, and it's my belief that um, there are a few jobs open this offseason in the SEC that um, other coaches would have taken those jobs over Ole Miss just because of the NIL situation. So that's my little NIL rant. But um, back back to what was the second part of that?
0: Yeah, no, you well, won you're right on that, and it's it's really indicative of how basketball is viewed and treated. I would say at Ole Miss, and you'd say justified, unjustified, whatever. It's not really the point, but that it falls right in par, right? Like football is king. Um, basketball is kind of way behind, and then baseball being good—I'm not sure—necessarily affects it, but like from an interest perspective, it probably hurts. But like from a sheer like nil and resources, it probably doesn't just because baseball is so different in that sense. But like them being behind in nil, while them, you know, for all of Ole misses flaws, I've actually been somewhat impressed with how quickly they've gotten organized when it came to football and NIL. Look, they're never going to have the pockets of some of these other schools that are competing against. But just in terms of being organized and getting on the ball and whether it's the Grove Collective and a couple of these other ones getting out in front of this, I've been impressed with that. But, of course, that is not extended to basketball at all. And so I think you're right on that. But bringing it back to, like, the, the coaching staff side of it, so Kermit has now lost two two of his assistants – so yeah. Levi Watkins goes to NC State. You just mentioned it's his alma mater. Ronnie Hamilton goes to join Matt McMahon's staff at LSU. The last time we spoke, and I thought you did a very good job of, I would say, threading the needle and fairly articulating perhaps the imbalance in terms of the value that the collective coaching staff brought, the one, in the, the one Kermit's had since he's been at Ole Miss. It was – Levi was definitely the strongest recruiter and then the other two kind of lagged behind a bit. I'll uh, I'll ask it this way. Is there, how common is that in college basketball? You're very familiar with the inner workings of different staffs. How common is it to have one recruiter that's um, maybe a lot further ahead than the others in terms of production and output and connections?
1: You can, you know, I'm, I'm big on this whole, assistant coaching staff thing you know there's been whatever it was five or six um spots in the sec this year and people would text me and say hey what would you grade these hires as i was like i'm not answering that until i see their staff right that's all that's how important i think it is so your question on the imbalance well the imbalance is actually pretty common for teams who don't have success Your Blue Bloods Bloods have three really good assistants. I know he probably underperformed a little bit this year. But Chris Beard has a phenomenal staff. Bill Self has a really good staff. Um, Cal was able to bring back Orlando um, and then bring in Chin Coleman this year. Like, schools, the the imbalance is actually – it's not super uncommon, but it is very commonplace in schools – that don't have success, you've got to strike at least two out of three on um, assistance to get where you want to be. And a lot of times the schools that strike two out of three, their their head coach can recruit at a pretty uh, high level too.
0: What was AK's makeup? I know you worked on that staff, but just in terms of like how often did he have it two out of three? And honest to God, his tenure goes back so long; I don't remember the early part of the turnover. How would you describe AK staff from an assistant standpoint for most of his career?
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> what make what, the, the tough part about this is? I'm I'm hand raised, a huge Bill Armstrong guy, sure. and obviously the what past couple of weeks. Him? If, yeah, the past couple of weeks, you know, some stuff has gone down there as well. Um, I would say um, he would kind of hovered in the one to two range during okay. his time. He had some good ones. I mean, look, Mike White was a good one. Um, Tory Ward could recruit at a really high level. Um, Bill obviously did really good things. Moody, Brian, TD, etc. So, um, but but I do think that from a decision making standpoint, if you said. Hey, what things could AK have done differently? And my my number one thing for him would have been, um, you know, his assistants his assistant staff. Now, where it gets tough to criticize him on that is he had the lowest P six staff a salary uh, assistant salary pool for like five years. And so how, how do you how do you go steal a Levi Watkins from Arizona State when? your staff pool is less than what his is, his, his is now at UAB. That, that's the tough balance there. Um, th- but, I, I, yeah, I will say, I mean, that, was the, that would have been the biggest criticism I had with him is what – did you ever have three guys together that could all go get it done?
0: And just to add on to your point without putting words in your mouth, that's, uh, you, you said it earlier, that's not the case anymore. Ole Miss does not have the lowest P6 salary pool, correct?
1: It's probably middle of the pack in the SEC. I mean, it's it's close to a million dollars. And so I'll just
0: say, there's really no excuse for that to be the case now. And you mentioned the two out of three and kind of hovering around one and two. That's kind of in line with how AK had success. He had some years. Look, there're probably still some people out there that think he shouldn't. He didn't have the success that maybe he should have. I just vehemently disagree with that. I mean, you don't last fourteen or thirteen however many long years he ended up lasting at Ole Miss, given the resources. I mean, think about it, AK coached most of his career in the tag pad, you know, without having success. And I think he overcame a lot of obstacles. And now, the, like, a lot of those excuses have faded. We just kind of mentioned the NIL part of it not being up to par, but the yeah. pool not a longer an excuse. The building's no longer an excuse. And so, I guess for spinning this forward, do you have any sort of idea where Kermit goes from here? And, I mean, look, I, Kermit's a smart guy. You th- like how how acutely aware do you think he knows that he kind of has to nail it in terms of like recruiter evaluator, like Levi type level, he has to nail it with these two hires.
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> he's got to, and it's gotta be a very transactional mindset at this moment. It's gotta be whoever I go get could get me a dude or dudes plural. Um, because look, the seat the seat's hot, right? And the what what's going to be really interesting about this is Levi just got a two year contract at NC State, um, which may me- which probably made him comfortable making that jump because it's one hot seat to the other. Would, is Keith going to give somebody a two year contract at this point from an assistant standpoint at three hundred grand or whatever the case may be? I, I just don't know that I see it. Maybe he does now the other the flip side to it, and it's just like my thoughts on nil, I get it if you if you've got money and you want to put it into a sport right now, you know football makes a lot of sense. why would you put it in basketball that is struggling? But people have to look at nil as a long term game. it's 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 like putting money into a mutual fund. long term, it's going to play out. There's going to be ups and downs to it. Um, so my my point on the two year contract is, I would feel comfortable if I was Keith giving somebody two years if it gave me like a real high major SEC dude or two that um, was like a multi-year transfer. Like a guy that's not going to – he can't leave really because of his situation or he'd have to sit out in another place. So I think there are like very little – like there's small situations where I would do it. But in general, I cannot see just giving anybody a two-year contract at this point. Um, you know, because of, because of how hot the seat is, um, and so for Carmen, he's he's got to go get he's got to go get somebody that can get him a dude or dudes. Um, and you know, he's got two spots open. Ronnie leaving to I mean, look, I'll be honest. Ronnie leaving LSU that was a, I was shocked by that. Um, not him leaving, him getting offered that um and i think the the only the way that i see that maybe it makes sense is if he's going to be there for a couple years and mcmahon's trying to kind of mat luke the thing a little bit and try to clean it up
0: i think it's a great analogy
1: yeah and then hey after two or three years we'll get get the nil thing going because they could have a two-year postseason ban for all we know and then maybe they upgrade their assistants a little bit but I mean, look, Ronnie didn't have the connections to recruit coast-to-coast for Ole Miss. Um, he he had some nice connections in the state of Georgia um, that got got us some players, but, you know, that was a loss that I thought if he was going to leave, it would be for, like, an AAC school or below. Fair enough.
0: I think, you're, I think you're right in that sense. Well, what was the – I cracked up at the – the one of the stipulations in McMahon's contract where it's like it's a seven-year deal, but it becomes eight. I can't remember if it's if they get a multi-year postseason ban or if they get a postseason ban. It's like, hey, man, congrats on your eight-year contract. Like, that's, that's probably pretty safe that that's happening. But I think you're probably right in that sense. The first part of that, though, you brought up about it being very transactional, and this honestly ties back to you talking about how you know, you're never necessarily out of it you know, if, cause you can get one or two dudes and then all of a sudden your whole outlook changes, do you think Kermit views it in that sense to where it's like, look, I don't have to hire somebody that's going to be with me for four or five years. I need a guy that's going to come in and going to get me. It's almost like he, like the assistant coach hire he's making, and this is probably too literal of a way to put it, but like recruiting extended, can I hire a guy that's going to be tied to some guy? What did you say about 20 minutes ago? It, you know, assistants are tied to the hip with the kids they recruit, and vice versa. Now, like, do you think he views it almost as recruiting extended to where it's like, can I hire a guy that's going to get me a dude and keep me here for another year or two? Like, do you think that's probably his mindset at all?
1: Say that. Say that. Say that again on the about his mindset.
0: Sure. Just in terms of hiring these two assistants, I thought you brought up an inter- like an interesting point on a couple fronts earlier. You were talking about how assistants are tied to recruits and really guys, that they're at the program at the hip. It's very, very close relationship. You also mentioned that this look – like the way he has to hire assistants has to be very transactional. It almost feels like recruiting extended, in a sense, from the assistant coaching hires. Like how acutely aware do you think he is of like, hey, the best route to go is probably can I just hire someone that's going to bring two dudes with them because they're attached at the hip versus a guy that, you know, thinking oh I can work with this guy three four years down the road
1: if that makes oh, sense oh oh I mean I'll be honest I'd be shocked if that's not what happens for at least one of the spots I'd, I'd be shocked if if one of the if it, one and maybe both of the spots were not people that have guys already because I mean it's it, I mean it's tournament or bust, right so like getting a guy that's gonna go get a high school guy in 2023 or 2024 I mean that's that's kind of irrelevant at this point I, I would be shocked if If who he brings in – I would be shocked if both of the people that he brings in do not have a player, uh, you know, attached to them.
0: We were talking a little bit uh, off air right before we recorded about kind of the challenges of this situation, and I think it faces multiple fronts because we've just run through all of this stuff, and that doesn't really include keeping the kids on the roster, right? I think I feel pretty good about their chances to keep Deshaun Ruffin, but, man, if you don't keep Matt Morrell – um, like what do we like It becomes an even harder challenge and even a more different conversation than we're having now. And so, you know, you were talking about how difficult it is. Like that's the other part of this, right. And that's kind of the transfer portal and the trans or the transfer portal, give it the transfer portal, take it. He's got all this going on and then he's got to figure out a way to keep I don't know how, how you've used Joyner as an asset and like how much he covets it, but that's a guy that can score in the SEC. And then Matthew Morell is the main one. He's having to do all of this and balance keeping two guys on the roster, which I can't imagine is easy.
1: With, with only one assistant to help him doing it.
0: Ooh, I didn't think about it from that perspective.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So no, I mean, it, it, it's a tough deal, right? And um, look, I mean, stuff always has happened behind the scenes. So you know, a a player of a Morel's caliber has probably gotten hit up not only this week, but probably for weeks, maybe even months now. Right. And so who knows on, you know, hitting him and who knows on Joyner. Um, I'm with you. I don't, I don't see a a scenario where Ruffin leaves, but it's a really tough deal going into next year. And I've been, you know, I've tried to be pretty transparent about evals on kids that come in um, that we recruit, whether it's high, high school kids or transfers. And, this JVS McKinnis guy from Jackson State, look, he could probably play up a level. Um, he probably could play Conference USA, Sunbelt, you know, that kind of deal, or maybe even AAC. But I, he he's not a high major player in my eyes. There are some things that he does defensively um, that could translate well, you know, in, in the SEC. But uh, he's not a high major guy um, for, your, for your back to the basket five, replacing a Nas Brooks. And, um that that's the tough piece he also shoots like in the 50 percent from free the free throw line so they need guys they need some they need some dudes who can score at three levels um they need some back to the basket bigs maybe, maybe just one um but their their take so far with him i just don't think that he's an sec player
0: that's been the problem though hasn't it I mean, whether it's high school kids or elsewhere, it's kind of like what exactly are they seeing in this? And so without putting you in a bad spot, and I hate to do the whole Taylor Twelman, but, like, what are they doing? Like, I was going to ask you about him next. Like, did, I? Did you just answered my question for me. It doesn't sound like you see it. So, like, what is – if there is a plan, like, what part of – if you're just taking your best guess, how, how does he fit in as part of a plan? Or is that just a guy just to get a guy? I mean,
1: I think there's just going to be a, a lot of – you know that staff, it's gonna be a lot of um, it's gonna be a lot of best available in their minds rather than fit so far because of the situation that they're in. Um, being on the hot seat, and I mean, think about this, right? Like this week, you're on the hot seat and you have uh, you have sixty six percent less recruiters than every other you know the vast majority of team in the country during peak portal season um so i think for him for kermit what's really important is you got to go get two assistants quick that can get stuff done because you're you're behind and you outside of you know these just tweets where these kids get blown up by all 351 schools in the country or whatever that are reaching out for interest like I haven't heard uh, a ton of names that's like shortlist people um, for this program outside of uh, McKinnis from Jackson State, and then I think there's like an NAI kid from maybe Loyola, New Orleans, or something like that. Um, oh, that get the it well.
0: fired up. You take an NAI kid?
1: <laughs> yeah, NAI a- 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 kid. Uh, he he was the player of the year. I'll give him that. But he also shot 15 percent from the three point line last year. So. That would, you know, I don't think that's getting your shooter in that you need. So I was about
0: to say they had two um, three point shooting that might balance things out last year. Um, <laughs> but it's, 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 a, it's, an, it's an up, but that's a probably a kind of a way to put a bow on like that part of the conversation. And before we get out of here, you just, I thought you outlined that great. It's a tough uphill battle, and it's one that's going to have to be fought in a handful of weeks and not months. Would you agree with that statement? Like he's going to have to kind of win all of these different battles to. I guess win the roster building war on paper in a matter of weeks, not months, right? I mean, this is all going to like come together for better or for worse in a fairly truncated time period, and he's got to hire two assistant coaches while doing it.
1: Yeah, I mean that's right. This the 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 vast majority of this roster will be will be done in four or five weeks. Um, So you got to go get it done. But I would assume for him right now, priority number one is keeping Matthew Morel um priority number two is you got to go get some assistance that that can bring some guys in and you got to get creative with that but the other piece of it too is if it's somebody that's a real impact dude there are six sec jobs that just got filled and i think most of them have at least a spot or two open outside of state i think that's right um well, what's what's going to be – why would somebody who's connected to a player not go to one of their, those schools where you can get a multi-year contract, more job security, et cetera, if you have, like, a real dude, like all-conference caliber players. So um, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what that looks like going forward roster-building-wise.
0: Absolutely. A couple of, honestly just random questions was interesting, I was interested in because I want to get your thoughts here uh, at the very end about just a couple of the other staffs and a couple of the other hires before we get out of here. But I've always just been curious, what is the process like? So when the season ends and guys are trying to figure out, you know, if they're going to be there next year or if they're getting processed or not, how acutely aware are the players of where they stand in terms of where they'll be next year? I won't use an example off of uh, this past year's team. I will try to think of one a couple years ago. I mean, like – Blake Henson a couple years ago probably had to know that his time in Oxford was over with the way they had to build the roster. What is these couple weeks like in terms of how the dialogue goes between a coaching staff and a player, and how aware are the players of where they stand?
1: Well, um, I think that most of them are, are fairly aware, and, you know, most of them are getting hit up by low and mid majors if they're kind of a bench guy, so it's it's in their it's in their head as well. But a, a, a back three or four a guy in the rotation, so you're ten through thirteen. They're normally pretty aware of what's going on. Um, and assistants will have transparent conversations with them. And you know, lead recruiters for these guys. like you uh, don't look at the transfers, but from the high school kids, a lot of those guys you've had relationships with for three or four years. So not only, you know, are you trying to be hey, we want you to stay engaged, but you be transparent with them, but also a lot of times these assistants are helping them get to the next place. Sure. You know, they're they're like, hey, this, you know, you're going to go down a lead, but here's the best fit for you. So, uh, you know, those those kinds of conversations are are pretty transparent and happen.
0: In terms of just generally and I looked, I know things change based off of like hey, maybe we're in the mix for this guy, so we have to like process one more kid. But in general, how quickly are the decisions made from a coaching staff perspective? Is that like a couple of days things that take a week? Like generally, like just in a random AK year, in terms of having a plan of kids you got to process or whatever, like how how quick
1: does that come together? This one I would think you're are talking about adding assistance on, correct? Yeah. Yeah, this one, I think, I mean, is going to happen really quickly. Um, It all kind of depends on the time of year and job security. I think it took us weeks before we brought Tony Madlock in in 2014. I mean, it took a a really long time. Um, And sometimes people keep spots open for a month or two or two, you know, three months because there's different dominoes that they think are going to fall, et cetera. Um, but for head coaching hires, most of that gets done in a week or two because a lot of that's kind of discussed uh, beforehand. Like, Matt McMahon's probably been talking to people for years about what his staff would look like if he got a P5 job. Um, And then you have guys like Jans who brought a dude or two over with him from New Mexico State. Like, that was known. Cohen probably knew that was happening when he brought him on, et cetera. So, I think to answer your question, it's kind of situational.
0: Fair enough. Um, yeah, it's a mess, man. It's, it's, it, it I don't say mess. It's a challenge. <laughs> mess might be a little too strong, but uh, some people may agree. I'm fascinated to see how this plays out. Um, before and certainly we'll have you back on to, uh, to kind of dissect it as the picture becomes a little bit more clear, whether that's a pretty one or not. A couple of things that right before I let you get out of here, what do you think of some of the hires around the league? Um, I would say that maybe the most shocking one to me was the fact that the uh, that McMahon took the LSU gig. What do you think drew him there? I just felt like that's a guy that could have had a fairly healthy high major situation. Maybe mm-hmm. this year, maybe if not in a year or so, and decided to kind of take on a uh, a uh, a honestly a pretty long term uh, process there with LSU's NCAA troubles. I just Scott Rubber just like sell these guys drugs. What what was the deal
1: there? <laughs> Well, I was a little surprised about it too. Um, I thought that McMahon, here's, here's what I thought McMahon was going to do. I thought McMahon was going to take, um, one of these kind of Missouri, South Carolina state jobs and try to look all coaches have a lot of confidence in themselves. So try to bounce it into like a really good job or blue blood, whatever the case may be down the road. Um, so I thought he was going to look for a quick fix, three or four-year SEC job and bounce it. The thing about LSU is, you know, LSU's a top half of the league job. Um, yes, there are NCA sanctions, but for McMahon, he can go in there. I know culture is a very cliche word, but he can go kind of build literally zero to 13 from the ground up, establish a culture, and he's going to have more job security than anybody in the country. And LSU's the type, type of job – I'd love to research this to see, like, has anybody left LSU for a, a bigger job? Like, D- Dale Brown got there, and it's like, hey, I'm I'm staying here. You know, like, they did sure. everything he needed to stay there. You know, now if a Kansas or somebody like that comes knocking. But I think LSU's a good enough job to where you, you can stay there for a while, and they're, they're going to take care of him. And I think that for him to make that move, there had to be some um, – you know, pretty transparent things in his contract and what expectations were. Also, LSU, I think is – I think they'll play NIL pretty strong going forward as well. So once they kind of clean things up, um, they'll be able to – they'll be able to go get dudes how they've gotten – because that's the funny part about Will Wade. Like, people have always gotten dudes at LSU. They've always had those resources. He's just an asshole.
0: (laughs) yeah that is certainly true it's a good point and like you know you mentioned in a day and age where these guys don't have time maybe he looked at it from the perspective of like okay this might not be great in the beginning but I'm guaranteed to have time I mean hell they basically gave him an eight-year contract like that's kind of unheard of in this modern day and age particularly when it's a new hire so that's kind of fascinating in that sense what do you make of the golden fit at Florida he filled out his staff pretty quick
1: yeah he filled out his staff pretty quick um he is a Hell of a coach, very analytically focused. He looks like he's about you and I's age, um, maybe about half a foot taller, though, at least. Um, and, and, you know, for him, I was expecting him to bring on a stronger staff than he did. Um, that, that's my only criticism so far. He brought in like the number two guy from state, uh, Corey, Corey McRae, uh, excuse me, Corey McRae was a big Atlanta recruiter you know he, he's got a lot of connections there but he brought in the number two guy at state to be either his lead assistant or his number two at Florida that was a little surprising to me um and then I think he brought somebody maybe from Richmond and um then maybe brought a guy with him from San Francisco so on paper I do wonder if the staff he has has the connections to be able to recruit at the level that Florida wants them to recruit at
0: Mississippi State, Chris Jans. I thought that was a pretty good hire. What did you think?
1: You know, honestly, it may have been it may have been best hire and best fit in the SEC. Um, now, Jans is Jans is tough. He's he's a tough nosed coach, um, but he has not. He's coached at six different places in his coaching career. He has never won less than twenty one games. Pretty good. There's something to there. that. There's something to that, and so. Um, he brought his guys over from New Mexico State, um, and then kept on George Brooks. George Brooks is the best recruiter in the state of Mississippi, so he's got a you know he's got a decent staff there. But J- Jans can coach, um, so if they can if they can get players there, I-, I think that he can probably get it done.
0: I had to look up the dude that Carolina hired. What do you make of um, Lamont
1: Paris? Yeah, Lamont Paris. You know he had a good run this year. He's been at Chattanooga, um, pretty respected um, in college basketball circles. Has spent a lot of his time as a recruiter in the Midwest. Um, for, for Lamont, I think it's, it's, it's going to be all about staff, too. But there are a lot of people that think that um, South Carolina may have downgraded from Frank to Lamont. So that'll be interesting to see going forward. And Frank got
0: a job pretty quickly. That's UMass deal is kind of an interesting, uh, interesting fit. Uh, If you're talking about hard nose stuff, that guy seems like he could fit in in the Northeast. Honestly, he feels like he could fit in anywhere, but like his personality and the way he stares a hole through you, um, half the time when he looks at you, that, that was an interesting, uh, interesting hire to me. Dennis Gates at Mizzou thoughts.
1: Yeah. So Dennis was one that um, I was shocked like a month or two ago that his name was not popping up. All, like in searches and then like articles for hot boards and stuff like that, because he he's an up and comer. I just think that that may be too big of a jump for him. Um, Missouri's probably not the job that it was a decade ago, but you still you got Kansas City and St. Louis right there, and Columbia's not a small town uh, anyway. They've got a nice arena and people really care about basketball there. I think for Dennis, that jump may have been a little too big. Just looking at it super early
0: I think did we hit the Mike White Georgia thing what was that that happened right after the last time we recorded what do you make of that though just uh, in case we did not
1: yeah so that um I mean man they moved quick on that and they were quiet with it too I think that for for Whitey Athens will be a really good fit for his family um and one thing you know uh Whitey did not get what he needed to done at Florida um I don't think he was terrible there but he obviously wasn't up to that standard And it's a really tough one because it's like florida pre-billy like what is florida basketball pre-billy uh donovan Lon Kruger had like a good year some good years there but um it, it's a hard situation to read what i do think whitey will do is i don't think they're going to be a top 25 team ever but a he raised their floor um and b He's been known to make some really good assistant coaching hires. He had to backfill two of his spots this year because both of his dudes um, got D1 jobs, and then FAU's coach actually worked for him um, before getting the FAU job. So he brought two of his guys over from Florida. I'm not sure what Pinkins is, is doing. Um, I'm, uh, he, he may have an offer there to Georgia, but looking around, so I think he's got one spot to fill, but... Whitey can uh, fill a staff pretty well. So that's one thing that I think will definitely be an advantage. Georgia will have one of the better staffs they've they've really ever had.
0: Yeah, that feels like a higher to where he could actually do okay there because the expectation is lower and that's a guy that probably lowers your floor. Is Is that fair?
1: Uh, You mean raises your floor? Yeah, sorry, raises
0: your floor. Yeah, lowering your floor is probably not where you want to go. But, yeah, uh, uh, raising your floor, that seems like a decent fit for him. And, honestly, you know, he wasn't the most popular guy in Florida in terms of approval rating by the end of that. Um, So, I imagine just getting a reset probably helps him a little bit as well.
1: 100%. 3.4 million is not too shabby either.
0: Yeah, that doesn't help either. What's a, I have no idea why this came up. It may have mentioned uh just something you said earlier. What is uh Sergio Ruco doing these days? Do you have any idea?
1: He was um uh, Bucky hired him at Sanford as an assistant, and I, be, I believe he's on support staff now at Sanford.
0: Okay. That that was a complete non sequitur. Um something you mentioned earlier made me think wonder that where that guy was. That was back when AK got was uh, recruiting all the foreign kids, and I did that story when I was at uh, the DM oh, yeah. about them recruiting that. kids all over the world. And he was like, "We used to have a lot of kids from Memphis, and now we just have Polish kids and Latvians." And I was like, "I don't know what to do with this information, pal." But that was a great quote. <laughs> um, Sergio Ruko is a great interview for that story.
1: He seems yeah, like he's a character. He's a character.
0: He is Brack and Ray uh former Eddie Guinea Stafford, Repeat Rights basketball correspondent. I uh I appreciate the time as always, dude. It was great to catch up. And uh, as we outlined, this uh this whole storyline and saga is far from over, and we'll uh we'll haul it again in a few weeks when the picture gets a little clearer.
1: Sounds like a plan.